Welcome to the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. My name is Avery Beddows, and I will be your host for this episode. Normally, Doug Clinton hosts, but this week, he is one of three guests on a special episode. The other two guests joining him will be Ladin Jiracek of the Neural Implant Podcast and now the University of Florida, and Dr. Manfred Frank of NeuronOff. The topic of this week's episode is discussing how neurotechnology should and should not be discussed in the media. With that, let's dig in. The topic of this episode of the Loop Ventures Neurotechnology Podcast is what, how, when, and why should neurotechnology be discussed in the public? Now, normally, we have our partner Doug Clinton hosting the podcast, and we invite one guest. But for this topic in particular, though, there are many viewpoints that are important to consider. So what we've done is we actually have not one, but three guests on for this episode. We have Ladin Jiracek of the Neural Implant Podcast. We have Dr. Manfred Frank of Neuronoff. And we have Doug Clinton from Loop Ventures. To kick it off, I'd like everyone to just give a quick little introduction about who they are and what the experience they have is that they think will contribute to a unique perspective on public discussion of neurotechnology. Ladin, you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm the host of the Neural Implant Podcast, and I've recently started working at University of Florida in the Kevin Otto Lab, the neuroprosthetics lab. And so I've really gotten to know a lot of people in the neural implant space. And it must be something like 50 guests now, and I've, I've attended a few conferences now and really gotten to know, you know, a good portion, a good ratio of the, you know, the field. So I don't know, I think it's really important to kind of gauge and get, get like average of what everybody's thinking and, and which direction the field is progressing. So yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for the introduction, Ladin. Manfred? Thank you, Avery, for uh, having me on here with you, Layden and Doug. Um, as uh, mentioned earlier, Layden and I had had uh, have had conversations about uh, a year or so back where we talked more about the uh, technological issues in neural engineering. And it's certainly important to now add that aspect of points like the when and why is uh, neurotechnology being discussed in public. Maybe a quick background uh, for me is that I'm one of the founders and the CEO of uh, Neuron of uh, Incorporated, which is a uh, startup here located in Valencia, California. And we're working on neuromodulation solutions for uh, peripheral neuropathic pain. I have a background in neural engineering from Case Western Reserve University and an electrical engineering master's from Dresden and Freiburg in Germany. From a practical point of view, I got some experience, obviously, both at Case as well as uh, the immersion, practical immersion that we had at college, but especially putting things to work at Boston Scientific, where I worked on nerve block technology to prevent unwanted muscle activity when nerves like the vagus nerve was being stimulated as well as later on during um, my work at Oculeaf, which uh, was a startup um, in the San Francisco Bay Area that worked on neurostimulation solutions for dry eye disease uh, with the goal to uh, increase tear production and provide a full and healthy tear. So basically helping the body to uh, uh, work on healing itself with its own tears instead of just using artificial tears. 
there I ran preclinical for a while and made sure that the clinical studies that we uh, then designed and executed were done well. And I helped with translating some of the preclinical work later on in clinical trials that helped obviously in the marketing side. So you could basically say that uh, in this round of us here uh, having a virtual coffee uh, on uh, University Avenue in Palo Alto is that I'm um, trying to provide both the technology and the R&D point of view. Thank you, Manfred. And last but not least, we have Doug Clinton from Loop Ventures. Doug? Yep, Avery, thanks for hosting. It's it's fun to be on the other side of the conversation as a guest. And thanks, Laden and Manfred, for joining. For those not familiar, Loop Ventures is a frontier tech-focused venture fund. And one of the frontiers that we've been exploring is neurotechnology fairly broadly, both for consumer and clinical applications. And I think what hopefully Avery and I can add to the conversation as we lead the practice at Loop Ventures is some of the deep thinking that we've done together and with the community about sort of the opportunities in the space and also some of the ethical questions and debate around how to properly bring some of these products to market. Thank you, Doug. So what we have here is we have a person who spent a lot of time on the media side of neurotechnology. We have a scientist slash entrepreneur slash engineer, and we have a couple of investors. So these are three really unique views that I think are going to be, they're going to work well together in tackling this topic of public discussion of neurotechnology. Now, before we dive into the really juicy part of the conversation, I think that it's going to be really helpful to our listeners to establish some background information to really dig into the topic. And it's also worth noting here that this actually exemplifies a broader issue that we'll probably touch on later, which is how to handle the different levels of scientific knowledge within the public forum. Now, I listened previously to Manfred's podcast with Ladin, where Manfred gives this hour and a half long incredible overview into neurotechnology. Manfred, do you think you can condense that down into a three to five minute blurb about what is neurotechnology? Why is it important? Why are all four of us excited about it? And realistically, why is our listener tuning into this podcast? All right. Um, that's a vast topic. So let me start with um, what the nervous system is and what it means for us. Um, think about the nerves in your body as a highway system designed to exchange information in the same way that the bloodstream exchanges both nutrients and information via hormones. This means that interfacing with nerves may allow us to have a treatment effect anywhere in the body, similar to how you would take a pill that reaches specific destination via the bloodstream. The big difference, though, is that the pills are less discriminate than neurostimulation can be, and that pills are rarely capable of truly repairing something that has been fully damaged. To give you an example, a pill is rarely able to help a person see again after uh, the person has gone blind. But there are companies out there, for example, one in France, one in Germany, uh, one not far away from here in Southern California and LA, that electrically stimulate the retina, that's the uh, sensitive part of your eye, or stimulate electrically the visual cortex of your brain. Um, if you're an individual who has uh, gone blind, 
in order to provide you the impression of light and thereby have the ability to navigate in darkness again and have an impression of uh, where there's a door, where is the, there's a window, where there might be a chair in front of you. Furthermore, second example, there are cochlear implants out there that uh, are devices that help people regain the ability to hear after they have lost hearing due to an illness or an accident. And last but not least, maybe just another general example that many people know of, there are uh, stimulators for either the spinal cord, for example, for the treatment of pain, or for the brain, uh, for individuals who are either suffering from conditions like spinal cord injury or stroke or Parkinson's disease, uh, to regain more controlled movements of their body again. Now, all of that is possible because neuromodulation is akin to playing virtual reality with the person's nervous system. What do I mean by that? Um, with that, I mean that if you have an organ, uh, such as uh, an organ in your, in your belly or a muscle that is supposed to contract, or the brain or spinal cord, uh, they are innervated, as we just discussed, and they do not know if a signal arriving on a nerve to them, if that signal is actually coming from somewhere within the body, or if it is originating from electric stimulation that has been provided to that nerve that is reaching that organ, that can be elicited electrically, can be elicited by ultrasound, mechanical stimulation, laser stimulation. There's a couple of ways uh, that we can uh, initiate what is called an action potential. And if you provide this action potential on a nerve, you basically transmit an information to the innervated organ. Now, that means that we can both treat conditions on the one hand, treat symptoms on the other hand, or, which might actually make it very interesting to all of us here, provide the impression of augmented reality to the body by interfacing with nerves which is, I think, how the uh, four of us get together here today. Amazing. Thank you so much for that overview. So as you can tell, there's lots of interesting stuff to dig into in the neurotechnology world. Obviously, we can't touch on all of that right here, but hopefully that will provide a good, a good starting point to dive into the first thing I want to discuss. And that is... I just want to go around to the three of you and ask if there are any specific instances you can recall where you've seen neuroscience and or neurotechnology in the news. Do you have any takeaways? I guess I'll, I'll start with that. And I think I'm going to take everybody's answer and just say that, you know, we've had some recent billionaires that are like, I'm going to invest in this space. And the most notable of which, of course, is Elon Musk of uh, Tesla and SpaceX. And he started Neuralink basically to broadband interfaces with, with, the, with the brain. And basically his goal is to Twitter at a thousand characters per second. That's, that's of course a joke. But another one is uh, Brian Johnson of, of Kernel and they've, both of them put like hundreds of millions of dollars of their own money into this, and uh, they, they really see a big future with it. And generally, I've seen a lot of TV shows, I've seen a lot of science shows that have talked about some of the technologies that I've covered. And honestly, with some of the people, some of the leaders in the field that I've talked with, and they just say it's the coolest thing ever. And I have to agree. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great TV special. <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind for me, Avery, is the Wait But Why article 
that Tim Urban did a little while back describing Neuralink. It's a fantastic article. It is worth reading, yeah, for anybody who hasn't read it yet. It's almost a book. I, I don't even know if calling it an article is doing it justice. I think I, think I checked. It's 33,000 words. Don't hold me to that. It's somewhere in that ballpark. Close to a book, yeah. And I think, I mean, he describes the technology in great detail. I think he does a very good job of explaining both technically how it works, but also sort of some of the applications that we might expect to use it for in the future. Um, and I think anytime a media person, even someone that's as sophisticated as Tim Urban, is explaining a complicated technology, a frontier technology to the masses, there's always a risk for the broader public to feel a sense of worry. I think in some ways, all technology that is something new by definition can be scary because change is inherently scary for people. And so I think that, number one, that's an awesome article that everyone should read. Number two, I think the reaction, whether it's to that article or other things that sort of describe some of these potential futures that we can create, I think the initial reaction for some people, not all, is that it does feel a little scary for them because it's so different and so profound. Yeah, Doug, I agree. The question of neuromodulation, especially as an implant technology is described into great detail at weight supply, is something that is scary if you look at it from the perspective of, hey, what is going to happen to me and do I really want this? And if it's implanted, is there a way to remove it? There's a lot of ethical questions involved that one should never underestimate and, and width and breadth. And that, but at the same time, what comes to mind for me when we're talking about recent publications is actually that the NIH is uh, starting to invest a lot of money into neuromodulation technology in the same way as GlaxoSmithKline started doing that in uh, 2012, so about five, six years ago, with them deciding to go into an area that is supposed to pick up where drugs leave off, in that sense that when a patient normally uh, starts with a treatment, medical devices or, or, or medicine in general, the treatment starts with drugs and the benefits outweigh the side effects. But usually as the body adapts, you have to increase the drug dose. And then at some point, the, the side effects outweigh the benefits. And that's the point when you have to look into alternative treatments because people might get addicted to the drug and likewise. And that's where neuromodulation technology, by providing a, um, a totally different pathway, but the same effect, treatment effect, as drugs might be, provides an alternative uh, avenue, so to say, that both drug companies and the NIH have realized they need to put some money uh, into in order for it to be developed at a greater grid. So I see a lot of uh, publications recently again, both from the NIH uh, as well as recently from DARPA, to develop neuromodulation applications, be it invasive, so implantable, or topical applications thereof. And I think that's a very good development because it just offers patients alternatives to drugs that might be uh, not providing the benefit with the level of uh, positive effects instead of side effects for them. Thank you, Manfred. I'd like to also throw my own two cents in here. What comes to mind for me are the public news media articles that describe the results of neuroimaging studies. This isn't a, a verbatim uh, title of an article or a report, but I'm sure something out there is similar where researchers find love to exist in X region of the brain. And it's a sexy title. It's intriguing because here's this human 
thing, love that is so it's so substantial in our in our subjective experience. And this media it reports that it can be reduced into this very concrete understanding of a module of the brain that's responsible for it. And the truth of the matter is it's way more complicated than that. The neuroimaging methods are extremely complicated and nuanced, and you have to be very careful about how you interpret them. The idea of a single module in the brain representing a specific function is highly contested and not the prevailing theory at this point. So that is what comes to mind immediately for me is reductive reporting of neuroimaging. And we'll talk about this a little a little bit later, but... I also want to comment that both Manfred and Doug mentioned this notion of the fear around neurotechnology and, and the, the weight of ethical implications. And there's there seems to be something underlying this. And, and it seems to be that, at least to me, it feels like there's something fundamentally different about neurotechnology from other technologies. And Doug and I debate this all the time. But this fundamental difference would then, in theory, necessitate particular care in the public discussion. So I want to open this question up to you guys. Is there something different about neurotechnology from, for example, consumer software technology or consumer hardware technology like phones? And if so, how does that influence how we should be discussing it? How does this relate to stem cell research or genetic engineering or artificial intelligence, which also bear heavy ethical connotations? I'd love to start. And maybe my comments maybe even serve to stir the pot a little bit. As Avery mentioned, we we debate this often. And for me, like I've always had this sort of first principle that maybe even taking a step back to give a quote as to why I have this first principle. There's a legendary quote from John Templeton, who is one of the best public stock market investors in history. And he said that the biggest fallacy, the most dangerous thing anyone can ever say as it comes to investing is this time is different because you fool yourself into believing that history hasn't taught us anything. And where I kind of come from on this question is not necessarily that there aren't important ethical implications for neurotechnology, but that really everything, any product that we use as consumers, any uh, medicine we use to get healthy has its own set of ethical questions. Anything we do really has sort of some of these ethical questions. And, you know, Avery mentioned AI. There's certainly questions there about the safety around that. There's genetic engineering. There's so many other different technological verticals that could have profound impact on the human experience. It's hard for me to say that, okay, neurotechnology, there's something about this one vertical. This time is different. And, you know, I feel like there's a fundamental danger there to think that any one of these things is so different from the other or anything we've dealt with in the past to say that, you know, somehow we need to treat it differently and ignore all of the past constructs that we've created around ethics. And maybe the real answer is some of those past constructs are valuable for the current discussion and maybe could even help solve some of the questions we have today about neuroethics and, you know, AI, genetic engineering, et cetera. Latin. Yeah. So I've talked about what I do and this project and everything to 
you know, hundreds of people. And, and I really haven't heard anybody say like, oh, that's not good or that's unethical or something like this, uh, questioning the ethics. I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me would be kind of a lack of control because you would have somebody else or something else controlling you. You know, they could theoretically like have you karate chop somebody and, and you don't even, you didn't even want to do that. And then they're like, whoa, why did you karate chop me? And I was like, sorry, I didn't, it wasn't me, but they might not believe you. Anyways, I personally think that things like, you know, nuclear fission and, and radiation, this is way, way more dangerous and way harder to control, but I don't think it's too bad. And again, kind of what, what Doug was talking about, the ethical implications, I mean, in my mind, pharma is, is much worse, you know, so uh, especially things like, you know, global drugs that you take and God knows what the side effects are and God knows how long it's going to, you know, it affects so many other organs instead of the targeted organ. And don't even get me started about hormones and how bad that is. And like that literally changes who you are as a person. You know, you're taking estrogen or testosterone or any other hormone. It's huge. It's huge. It literally, it changes how aggressive you are. It changes everything about you. So I think that to me is, is a much bigger issue. And I mean, I may be in the minority saying like, Hey, drugs are pharmaceuticals are much worse than anything that you could do with neurostimulation. But I think I'm in a minority. I, I haven't really debated that with anybody. So I would love to do that one day. <laughs> if I may interject here. So I had been reading a book called Scientific and Philosophical Perspectives in Neuroethics. It's edited by Jim Giordano and Bert Gorgian. I apologize, Bert, if I mispronounced your last name. There is a particular quote in here which summarizes how I feel about this that I'd like to share. It's on page 328 for anyone who's interested. And it reads, neuroscience policy, like genetic policy, has distinctive importance in contemporary politics because it challenges intensely held societal values relating to the self, privacy, discovery, justice, health, and rights. What I get out of this is that there's something about the brain that, at least under the modern scientific view, pertains to what I would call the essence of personhood. And that is why I personally feel that there's something distinct about neurotechnology in contrast with other technology, because these technologies interact with an ostensible substrate or partial substrate of that essence. I just wanted to throw that out there to use Doug's phrase, stir the pot. Yeah. And I would add to that too, like, you know, this time is different. Like what was, uh, what Doug was saying, it, it's really not different. So, I mean, if you inject like God awful amounts of steroids, you know, testosterone, you're going to be a different person. <laughs> there's no, there's no doubt about it. Like anybody who's ever met you before is going to be like, whoa, this person's not the same person as they used to be. So I'm also maybe stirring the pot more. I don't know. I don't know how we're using this, this expression, but I would say it's not any different than before. It may be on a faster time scale, but, you know, instantaneous theoretically, but it's not going to be that different than before. Manfred, do you have any thoughts on this you'd like to add? Yes, especially with two of you stirring the pot, I'm going to try to calm things down. <laughs> well, thank you. We needed that. And that is, let me add two thoughts fundamentally. Number one, as we're talking about access to a person's thoughts, a person's fears, a person's wishes, basically access to a person's brain. We have to understand that it is incredibly hard to get a reproducible effect in a lot of people with neuromodulation when you go into, into stimulating their brain or trying to read data from their brain with something as simple and straightforward as EEG, that's an electroencephalogram when you have electrodes on the outside of the skull and you read electrical signals that give you an idea of uh, brain activity. 
with these methods, for example, you cannot read out a brain, a person's thoughts. You can merely distinguish with a lot of processing and usually in combination with the processing in MRI, in a, inside an MRI and measuring where blood flow is going in their brain, that you can merely say, this person is thinking yes or no. So fundamentally, with these kind of technologies, there is already the ability, yes, you can distinguish if somebody says yes or thinks yes or no. But it is with our current technology, especially as we're talking implanted technology, very, very hard to get specific information out of the brain that are more than just a yes-no answer, number one. And number two, if you think of the newest developments done to help people who have had an accident or an illness that made them a quadriplegic, for example, and they, meaning they cannot move their hands or, or legs, and they are implanted with a chip that has about 100 electrodes on it, you are able to get some very good reading how they want to move their arm or their leg. And so if they want to go more left or more right, but it takes about a month or, or two of very intensive training of the, basically a wall of computers in, inside a room that's in the same room as the person that is connected to that wall of computers. People point to that and say, this looks like the matrix, basically, that you're directly connected into the brain of a person. And while this is fundamentally true, you're reading electrical signals from the brain, from the premotor cortex or from the motor cortex. So it is either the motion planning or the actual brain activity leading to the motion that would lead to the motion of an arm that you can read out. It takes a month to train the algorithms of those computers. We are nowhere close to simplify that in a little package that you can take with you. We are nowhere close to get these signals to be long-term stable because that's one thing that, you know, I, I want to point out as well, there's a difference between putting something into the body and getting clean signals from the first hour to about the first day to the kind of signals that you get after about a month because your body reacts to something that you place into your body with a scabbing, with the technical term is encapsulation. Your body forms a shield around it. If it can't get rid of it, it tries to wall it off. And that means that you lose signal. So you basically lose the inability and you lose the ability to record in a high enough quality that you would be able to distinguish between a finer signal than just a general yes or no. And this is just to give you a couple of little things that the last 10 years has been discovered numerous times as a fundamental outcome by many labs in the U.S., by DARPA, and by many other companies out on locations outside the U.S. that were trying to either record with a high number of electrodes or were trying to stimulate a lot of little points. Now, with that in mind, the FDA is giving out a guidance, Food and Drug Administration is giving out guidances fundamentally that help with the development and clearance of medical products. And the general approach that the FDA takes is a product is only going to be possible to be approved for people if the benefits outweigh the risks. So if you talk about something that's implanted that, for example, helps with Parkinson's disease, then it must be 
relatively low risk to have the implantation. It must be relatively low risk to have the device with you as you walk around in your everyday life. Manfred, yeah. I, I'd like to take this opportunity to actually launch into a quick tangent because you brought up the FDA. That's a perfect transition into where I wanted to go next with this. So if you'll forgive me, I like to hijack this thread because I think it's such a good transition point. Sure thing. So the FDA gets involved when a neurotechnology is intended for medical purpose. Uh, Manfred has spent a lot of time working both with actually non-invasive medical technologies and invasive medical technologies. When he talked about the uh, case of a quadriplegic patient who has a neural implant that's obviously invasive, you have to open up the skull. And so one big bucket of neurotechnology is medical, but there's also the side of consumer neurotechnologies, as we discussed way back at the beginning. Uh, one example that comes to mind, which I, which I think is particularly interesting, is actually no longer on the market, there's a company called Think, which I think in 2015 released an externally worn neurostimulation device. It would stimulate the trigeminal and facial nerves, as well as, I think, C2 and C3 cranial spinal nerves. And in doing so, it could either create a sensation of relaxation or of energy. They released a second product. They, since, they have since pivoted. But this idea of consumer product that can modulate affect or modulate emotion... I think is a really interesting example of consumer neurotechnology. And so going back to the topic of our discussion here, which is the discussion of neurotechnology to the public. And I really want to, I really want to really hone in on that and focus on this idea of how and when and why neurotechnology should be discussed to the public. What are the differences between that for consumer and medical neurotechnologies? How is the public going to respond differently? Do you think to consumer versus medical technology? In terms of the media reporting on these technologies, to what extent is the accuracy, or, or I should say scientific accuracy, important for a consumer versus a medical neurotechnology? And finally, what is the downstream impact on public perception, or rather of public perception on these technologies? So for example, if medical neurotechnology is reported as achieving something versus a consumer neurotechnology is reported as achieving something in the public, it, the public eats it up, starts getting discussed. What impacts will those filter back to have on research and on commercial applications? I'd be happy to start. I think maybe the first way to think about it is sort of from a risk standpoint as the end consumer. And the way that I think about it a little bit is when you're uh, dealing with a medical neurotechnology device or application, you are sort of by definition relying on your doctor to have a very deep understanding of whatever that product is that he or she is prescribing you to use. And so in that sense, you're sort of transferring the risk of understanding off to a medical professional that you in some way trust. From a consumer standpoint, you're by definition taking on that risk on your own. Right. And that's true of any consumer technology product that someone might use or any any product, really. I mean, you could even argue for, you know, something like smoking or drinking alcohol. There are definite risks to using those products as a consumer. And there's some ostensible or at least tacit understanding that you know that those products are not necessarily good for you, but you accept the risks and you do them anyway. And so that's kind of how I think about it from a high level is, you know, you're sort of transferring risk when you're using a medical device because there's a professional involved. When you're a consumer, there's at least philosophically a need for a better understanding of what the product does 
in practice, as we've seen kind of using that maybe alcohol or other substance example, people may not always be as knowledgeable as they should be about any product that they use, neurotech included. But I think there's at least an assumption that they should be more knowledgeable. And I think as a consumer neurotech company, it may even be an advantage for companies that do a very good job of describing explicitly how their product works, what the risks are, making it understandable for the average consumer. And to the extent that consumers get more comfortable with that understanding, they're probably more likely to buy. So I think there is kind of like a capitalistic endpoint for that in that sense. Doug, I want to push on this a little bit more. I know that you recently purchased and have been trying the uh, Halo Sport headband from Halo Neuroscience. For those of you who don't know, the Halo headband is a set of headphones that uses transcranial direct current stimulation to, as they call it, prime the motor cortex so that it can learn more easily. And the idea is to, is the idea is for an athlete to wear it and improve more quickly. Doug is an amateur athlete. And so that's why he's been using it. And I know, Doug, you and I were talking a little bit about the terms of service or terms and conditions, I believe, for the Halo. Uh, and you had some thoughts on that. You want to share them? Yeah, I actually think they did a, an interesting thing that I think was was a positive experience for me as a user, which is anytime any of us use a consumer electronic, uh, we all sign these terms of service. It's on your iPhone when you set up your iPhone for the first time or your Mac for the first time. I doubt anybody has ever read the full document, so we have no idea what we're signing ourselves away to. There's even a funny South Park episode about that, about how none of us read kind of what we're signing up for. But what's interesting for Halo is what they did is they have that kind of standard long-form legal document about what you are agreeing to as a user. And then they have a second page as you're signing up on the application to start using the device that specifically calls out a few things that if you are, for example, pregnant, if you have had seizures in the past, you should not use this device. So they call it out very explicitly to try to protect people. And I think just as best practice, that felt really powerful to me because it wasn't this you know, unending page of text that I knew I wasn't going to read. It was four or five lines that was very highlighted. And, and I knew that they wanted me to pay attention for that one second to read it and understand it. And I did. Doug, may I ask you a question in that regard, actually? Sure. That device, the Halo, is a consumer device. It's not a medical device, correct? Correct. So that means that the Halo had never had to go through uh, clinical trials. That's correct. Yep, to my knowledge, yeah. The reason why I'm pointing that out is because these would be the typical things that you would, when you conduct a clinical trial, would be the first questions a doctor would actually ask the patient. So what, what I see here is a, a, a parallel mechanism that Halo, the team of Halo, has taken that they basically ask the patient, or the user in that case, really early on, are you pregnant? Did you have any seizures? Thinking of the primary risk factors that may be affected if a person were to use this device. Those are the kinds of things that are also in the label as a contraindication. A label is something that a medical device receives after it has been cleared by the FDA for a specific indication. And I think this is where uh, the major differentiator actually is. And it kind of chimes in with what Doug said earlier, that you give away some of the risk to the doctor who is making the call on what device or drug you should use for the treatment of a specific condition which is not done when uh, you purchase something as a consumer electronic. And that's why I think it's intelligent, uh, definitely, what the, t the Payless team has done to ask these kinds of questions, similar to the way how a clinician would do, 
simply because they understand that the use of this consumer electronic device can have that side effect. Similar to stroboscope light that you would not ask a person to a person to use that has had seizures before, for example, or certain electronics that you're not supposed to use when you have a cardiac pacemaker because it might actually mess up the signal that is so let me take this in a slightly meta direction. So Doug and Manfred have sort of conjointly commented on, at least at first glance, seems like a best practice for consumer neurotechnology, namely to take something that would have been done in a clinical trial and put a nice UI around it, give it to users rather than patients. And given that sort of the original question here is differences between consumer medical neurotechnology in, in their discussion in the public, we've hopefully identified a best practice that can make consumer neurotechnology even safer than than a baseline. And given that we, at least I think there will be, and there is and will continue to be general fear around the use of consumer neurotechnologies, how do we take best practice like this and vocalize it to the public as an example of, hey, we are thinking about this here's what we're doing to make sure that you're having as safe of an experience as you can as possible. Because as Doug said, people let terms of service fade into the background all the time. It's never a thing that they actually think about. So how do we bring sort of a conscious awareness to this as a means of communicating that as developers of neurotechnology or as investors of neurotechnology, we are thinking about this kind of thing? Yeah, I could answer this. I think it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem. You know, like I think, you know, you can have whatever UI, you can have whatever terms of service that you want, but honestly, people aren't going to trust it and aren't going to believe it until they see that, you know, their friends, their neighbor has done it and they they didn't die when they tried it and they got better. So I think they'll have to see it with their own eyes, especially for, I don't know, the 95% of not early adopters, not super early adopters. You know, I'm talking about the general populace, I guess. And, you know, I think that's the big thing. And, and honestly, I think the consumer side of things will help the clinical side of things later and just kind of bring an awareness, you know, kind of like a pacemaker, you know, in the beginning, nobody knew what this was and maybe a bit skeptical about it, or it's kind of a choice of last resort. You know, I was talking to Jennifer French of Neurotech Reports and she was saying, you know, Rush Limbaugh, you know, he had to have an implant and it was a choice of last resort, even after therapy and drugs and God knows what. But honestly, I think, and I think everybody at this round table thinks that, that this technology has the potential to be significantly better than pharmaceuticals, therapy, anything else. And we just have to get above people's, get through people's expectations and and get them used to this idea and that it really, hey, it is better. And they won't see that until their neighbor or their friends or, you know, sons, daughters, whatever, that, until they do it. So that's kind of my opinion. I'm talking more about the general populace, I guess. You, you mentioned this idea of oh, you see your neighbor using this neurotechnology, they're totally fine, so now you're willing to use it yourself, or at least more likely to be willing to use it. And it makes me wonder, to what extent do you think that for the public, for, let's say, consumer neurotechnology, quantitative evidence of safety and efficacy is going to be significant in contrast with qualitative or anecdotal evidence of safety and efficacy? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, if people, if their news feeds are populated with stories like, oh, this consumer neurotech thing killed somebody or like killed a family somehow. I don't know. I don't know what it did, but it killed a family. And, and you know, maybe they don't see the first one. Maybe they don't see the second one. But I, I think it's kind of like the self-driving cars. Like everybody was freaking out when the first one, the third one, but it, actually that wasn't so big. But really it's kind of, it takes some time to get into the public consciousness. So I think if there isn't anything 
too bad that gets into the public consciousness, which is kind of a slow acting thing, like on the order of months, then I think it could be okay. So just don't like assassinate a bunch of school children and I think it could be okay. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's always advisable. I think that Laden makes a really good point, which is, and for any consumer technology product, this is true, but there's this sort of Darwinistic social proof element to adoption, right? And if you think about the normal technology adoption curve, you've got the early adopters, the kind of early growth, the mature growth, and then you know the late adopters in that four-quadrant construct. By definition, for any new technology, your early adopters will probably fall in one of two categories, to be fair. Either they are very interested in the product and they do their research, they understand the risks, they understand the research and the data, and they feel comfortable with that risk and they want to use the product and try it themselves. And then if it works, they tell their neighbors, to Laden's point. There's probably another element there, I don't know if it's bigger or smaller, of maybe some of this just a maverick. They don't care about the risks and they'll just try it either way and then they'll tell their neighbors too. But I think the point is that when you have a test bed of people that for some group of them understand the risks, they're doing it as a calculated test and then are able to kind of tell their friends and family about the experience anecdotally. I think that is how all technologies kind of get adopted. And I think consumer neurotech will kind of follow that same pattern. I think the quick addition to that is that we actually see that for the last uh, 20 to 30 years, people have been using external stimulators like TENS units and trying to stimulate all over the body, either to help them with uh, relaxing muscles or trying to take effect of nerves that are somewhat close to the outside of the skin and have had very mixed results as a result of it. And that's why, as the FDA looked at it, the FDA basically said, you cannot use a TENS device, you can't make a claim using a TENS device to treat XYZ if you don't do a clinical trial. And this is basically the FDA making sure that a consumer electronic-like device, like TENS unit, is not being sold as snake oil to help people with all kinds of reliefs and, and medical conditions. And that's why they also take a very clear differentiation between a commodity item and a medical device. I believe Think also was not trying to get a clearance as a medical device because they were not making medical claims. They had mixed results. It worked really well on some people, and a second group of people didn't see the effect at all. And that's not untypical of anything that interfaces with the body because our bodies are different. And it's also very similar to the way how drugs are interacted with the body. And that's why the FDA takes the additional step of asking for proof of evidence to give the, the patient, in that case, the assurance that it is something safe, low risk that they can use. And they can give this to somebody who does not fall into the category of an early adapter, but actually into the category of somebody who has tried other things before and is now willing to try this as a treatment approach. And obviously, you want to get away from just the medical device paradigm as you're talking about neuromodulation getting into the wider public. And where that will take crossover, I think, will be when you see different applications resulting from people testing different electric waveforms, testing different stimulation locations, and, and likewise, and actually seeing a reproducible effect 
that may be augmented. So it, it may give people a different perception or a quicker learning as an outcome, but it is not actually a medical claim. So the FDA is comfortable with not regulating it because they understand it's a tension that it's not going to hurt the person in the location where it's being used, but it's also not being claimed as helping people with a medical ailment. And they will leave that alone. But the moment that somebody crosses the line over into the medical space, that's when the FDA gets involved in order to protect people. So I want to transition for one last topic here. And this is sort of a big topic. So Neuralink, for example, the ultimate goal of Neuralink, if I remember the Wait But Why article correctly and have read enough Elon interviews, is to fuse a human with a computer. Now, obviously, this is from everything that I can tell, and I think everyone here would agree, is a long ways off. It's an exorbitantly difficult challenge. I, I don't think that description even does the difficulty justice. But there are obviously steps along the way. And as Manfred mentioned earlier, a lot of the things we talk about with interacting with the brain as, as this substrate or the, of human essences are super difficult. But one can conceive of the idea that we will make progress along the path of understanding at higher and higher, more abstract and more abstract levels, what someone's thinking, what someone's feeling. And perhaps we have the eventual ability to, in some way, induce a thought or induce an emotion the think device for the people who does work for us, a good example of inducing an emotion. And so the question I have is, in between now and the full Neuralink vision of the human-computer fusion or the human-AI fusion, which is a ways off, what is going to be the development or the developments that cause the most lashback in the public or in politics, what are going to be the most contentious things that happen? I think that philosophically, it's a really difficult question to answer because there's a dynamic of if we were able to guess what the right answer would be, you know, what the biggest danger is, we could prepare for it. It's almost, you know, a, a black swan-ish concept where whatever the thing is that ends up causing the most backlash, it will have to be something that we didn't see coming and couldn't possibly have prepared for. And so I'm not sure is the answer. I do think that uh, Manfred made an interesting point earlier talking about people kind of experimenting with TENS units. And as people get these devices on the consumer side, maybe even on the medical side, and start experimenting with them themselves, start figuring out alternative ways to use them, the creativity around how they use them and what they might do and, and what the output of that might be, that might have something to do with it. You know, I, I think that like that mix of creativity and ingenuity can be great and sometimes it can be dangerous. But my instinct is it's something on that end and not something that's necessarily predictable today. Ladin, any thoughts here? Yeah, so I was away from the computer for a little bit, but what was the question actually? question was, which of these developments or what development do you think is going to be the most publicly and politically contentious? I think the development, it's going to have to be like communication and, and a frictionless communication and communicating with everybody. Maybe having your, your thoughts read as well. I think that's pretty no-no territory, especially in America, where privacy is very paramount here, and especially some parts of the country more than others. I think that will be the thing that kind of scares people the most and might really get people to reassess whether we're going down a good path or not. Until then, I honestly think it will be 
pretty okay though. I think I don't think there will be too many issues with you know getting the public on board if things are working the way they should. I disagree that it will only happen when we start discussing the question whether or not you can listen at somebody's thoughts because this is already in, out in the open right now that people are worried that neurotechnology may at some point be used to listen to our thoughts, control our thoughts. While this is a big, big issue, uh, if it ever happens, I think this is so far down the, lo- down, down the line that people will start discussing much more earlier potential impacts the neurotechnology can have. And that is, you can, with neurotechnology, by stimulating specific nerves in your body, affect the way how your body reacts to stress. You can raise your heart rate. You can lower your heart rate. There are first data that you can help people remember information that they didn't remember before without the stimulation of neurotechnology. So we're starting to get into the field of augmentation, not just from a medical perspective, so maybe even from a a consumer electronic perspective. And if you start talking about augmentation, then the question is, where is helping okay and where does cheating start? Give you that example, if you're sitting at a test and you were to use a stimulator that you place on your neck, for example, and it helps you to remember information more easily, is that cheating? People will have to discuss these kinds of things. Thanks for your great thoughts on that last question, everyone. You know, we've really only scratched the surface of this topic of asking and, and investigating when and how and why neurotechnology should be discussed in the media. But I think we covered some really good ground. We touched on some important and intriguing and thought-provoking, and to use the phrase from earlier, pot-stirring topics. This is a new format for us with myself as host and with three guests, and we'd love to hear your feedback on it. We'll certainly be back in the future with more content for you. Until then, over and out. <laughs>